Amen. Uh, well, listen, before we dismiss kids to class, which is the normal thing we do right now, what I want to do is I want to have you get in your mind uh, sort of what your prayer life is like right now. And this is for everyone in the room. Unless you be freaked out at, what is my prayer life like? What am I supposed to do with that? And don't over-spiritualize it. If prayer is simply a conversation with God, where, how is the conversation going right now? How would you describe it? And here's how I want you to do it. I want you to take your prayer life, and I want you to compare it to, uh, to Taco Bell sauce. So, lest you forget, I'm well aware of this because I frequent this fine dining establishment frequently, but you have the classics, which is mild, hot, and fire, and then you have sort of the outliers, which are verde and Diablo, okay? Now, some of you know that what's not up here is breakfast sauce. Breakfast only lasted for a short period of time. If you want to use breakfast sauce in your answer, you can. So right now, you're going to turn to someone near you. You're going to compare your prayer life to Taco Bell sauce, and you're going to share as deeply as you feel you can in 30 seconds with that neighbor, or you can just say, here's what my prayer life is like. It's like this sauce. Go. I'll call you back to attention in a second. Fifteen seconds. If you haven't switched, switch now and tell the other person. And stop. All right, man, you guys are good at comparing your prayer life to Taco Bell sauce, or you're just hungry and you're giving your order. Like, here's what I normally get at Taco Bell. Um, listen, anyone here some interesting answers that they would like to share? Now, really quick, you've got to do a quick nudge and be like, is it okay if I share your answer? So you're not sharing your own answer. You're sharing the one that just was shared with you, um, but you need their permission first. So anyone hear an interesting answer that they want to share uh, that they heard from their neighbor? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't really have to be interesting. It could be mundane, boring, or average. Our daughter, our prayer life is both kind of mild. I wonder if it was on fire, would her be on fire? Mmm. So the relationship now between mom and daughter. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Someone else. Anyone else have a mildly mundane answer that... Maybe interesting was way too high of a bar. You're like, I really don't know if it's that interesting. All right, James. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, we got sauce mixing going on. That's next level, James. All right. All right, listen, with that, thank you for participating. Kids, you are off to talk about, I mean, you are off to class. Um, and uh, the rest of you can open up your Bibles to Luke, and your bulletin will have this wrong, but Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Actually, it's not. It's Luke chapter 11. Even that's wrong. We are, we are way off on your bulletin. By the way, open your bulletin for one second. Uh, the, 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 the handout notes in your bulletin have been um, crossed off and lovingly changed. The date was changed by hand. Do you guys all see that in your bulletin? 
That is the loving leadership of Les Albert. Can we just give it up for Les right now? This is a guy, this is a guy who takes his craft seriously. He doesn't come and say reprint these. He goes and hand, hand changes them. But then he realized, Dave, your passage was off as well. And I said, well, just cross that off and write the correct one in all of them. He drew the line at that. Um, let me, let me do, let me do a couple of quick announcements, uh, before we get into our passage. Number one is this. We are planning on taking a trip to Israel this coming summer. Uh, you've already heard about this from Brian Jackson. Um, this coming Saturday at 2 p.m. is a meeting. We already did sort of an interest meeting about that. If you are uh, seriously contemplating it or want more information, Brian, wave your hand. He's in the back. He will be back here with some flyers on it. But this coming Saturday at 2 p.m. is a meeting where we're actually putting sort of uh, feet to this and, and moving forward with it. We're looking at a June trip. Uh, the guy who's leading the trip, a friend of mine from way back when, a phenomenal uh, scholarly man who's going to be, uh, him and his wife lead this trip. It's incredible. He's going to be at this meeting um, sort of helping with that. Also, Kelly Barrow, come up here for a second. Um, many of you know that this church was one of the pilot churches to help get Foster the Bay off the ground in fall of 2015. When we cast vision for Foster the Bay, um, we, uh, we saw four of our families step forward in foster care and many more of our families step forward in support friends to kind of wrap them with care and support. The driving force behind Foster the Bay, which by the way, we now have, um, we just launched in Santa Cruz County, which was our sixth county of 11 counties touching the Bay Area, and we just announced um, Sonoma County launching as well. It's been a miraculous work of God to see the churches raise up uh, and do incredible things. The lifeblood of Foster the Bay at a church is a role called the advocate. The advocate is the one who's like a Bunsen burner under this topic, and we say, pastor, church staff, you don't have to become an expert on one more thing. We want your advocate to be the one that's going to help drive the ministry. Here's what we've had at Neighborhood Bible Church. We've had no less than four advocates at this church, one of them sitting here in the front row. And just a quick word on ministry transition. When you step into a calling that God is calling you to do, you will often not feel completely prepared. Amen? Um, and you also, there, there are off-ramps. There are seasons to start things. There are seasons to set that down and, and move on from that. We've had really healthy transitions here with this role. Um, Mindy Nemec, Mindy and Phil have been heading up the advocate role. I'm having up here for a long time. She loves being up in front of people. Not really. Thank you, Kelly, for being gracious. Phil and Mindy Nemec have stepped into a role that we're calling orphan care director. The, the orphan care ministry at this church is sort of so, so robust that we have a lot of different ministries. They're going to oversee the entire thing. And Kelly has excitedly and graciously stepped in to be our new advocate for Foster Bay. So would you just welcome her in that role? Um, I promised her there'd be no speech, there'd be no song and dance. She just, I just want you to see her face and I want you to attach it to Foster the Bay um, so that you can come to her with questions, come to her with, hey, that sounds interesting, I want to be a part of that. So thank you, Kelly, appreciate it. She is now rushing off to be with kids, by the way, because she serves in, in incredible ways that, uh, that way. All right, let me get to our passage this week. Last week, we looked at Mary and Martha. If you grew up in church, you know about Mary and Martha. And what we saw from Mary's behavior is that, um, is that having Jesus for dinner for Mary didn't mean a whole bunch of chores. It didn't mean a whole bunch of hosting. It didn't mean getting everything right. It meant sitting at Jesus's feet and savoring her portion. It meant just relishing what she already had in her friendship with Jesus. 
We talked about the idea that listening to Jesus is like breathing in scuba, right? If you're scuba diving, you breathe first and often, and you never stop breathing. If you get that wrong, everything else is going to get messed up in a hurry. We sit at Jesus' feet, we listen and savor to him, not just once. It's not a once-for-all-time for thing. We listen and keep on listening even as we get to our chores. There are chores to be done. Rick Palm asked in second service last week, he goes, I wonder if anyone ever got to eat. Like, who finished the chores? Did, did, did they finish the chores to have the meal? So there's, there's this sort of tension and balance going on. I pray that this week, um, I want you to know, I apply my own sermon to myself. God often makes the people who are the most dense the preachers. You know why? We study all week long, then we say it a couple of times on a Sunday morning, and finally it's like, oh, light bulb, and it comes on. My own action item out of last week's sermon was to enhance some spiritual practices I already do. But one of them is this, to sit and savor my relationship with Jesus Christ. To just sit there and soak in that. And I did that this week. I hope that you have made holy time, set aside time. You won't find this time just laying around, will you? You have to carve it out. And you have to make time for it. And you say, this is holy time. What does holy mean? It means set apart for a special purpose. I'm going to set aside this time for nothing other than to savor my Savior. It's a difference of seeing the face of Jesus, not seeking the hand of Jesus. You know that you have an opportunity every single meal you ever have. You could have your meal in front of you. And as a spiritual discipline, in that moment, before diving in and receiving the calories of that meal, you could just smell it. You could take a moment and really look at it. Look at the textures and look at the sights and go, man, this is a beautiful meal. Taco Bell really knows how to lay out a gourmet meal. <laughs> when you pray, it could be more than rote things to just say thank you for it. You could take a deep comfort in saying, God, I have a hot meal sitting before me. When you say, bless the hands that have prepared it, you could do that more as in just sort of a hab habit that you say to hurry up and get on to eat. It could really be the thoughtfulness of going, man, there are people who worked hard to make this happen. You could stop and savor who you are eating your meal with. Man, those are, those are realities that can sort of train us before we rush in to ask God for things, to seek answers and direction, all of which are good things. But it's different, isn't it, to have a prayer time that isn't seeking direction isn't making a request of a need, isn't trying to learn something new or be theologically correct, to just sit and be in relationship with Jesus and recognize that and savor that. Well, I pray that this morning even, I pray Sunday mornings would be a time that you could savor your portion, that you could put your mind on the inheritance that you already have and enjoy it on a Sunday morning. Last week we saw Mar uh, Martha, Mary's sister, who really could have used the biblical passage that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, but he hadn't written it yet. She could have memorized this verse and internalized it because it would have been really, really helpful for it. What is it? It's found in James. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Martha had sort of a hat trick of sin, didn't she? Quick to speak. Lord, don't you care? Tell her to help me. And, in fact, she was quick to speak and quick to anger. So if you take the Mary passage 
and you take the Jesus passage we're going to look at this morning, we just sang our text, part of our text, which is the Lord's Prayer. Isn't a conversation something about speaking and listening, giving and, and receiving? That's what all conversation is. Otherwise, it's just a monologue, right? And if you take Mary, who teaches us what listening to God really looks like, and you take Jesus, who teaches us what speaking to God looks like, what you have side by side in the Gospel of Luke is a picture of how we're to have a conversation with God. I want you to participate with me, if you feel comfortable, and I want you to think in some childlike ways. Isn't it biblical to, to think in childlike ways? It's one of the things I love about having so many kids around here. We can learn from them. They can learn from us. But kids have no problem expressing themselves. In fact, many of them have less vocabulary, so they use more body language. Doesn't, doesn't research consistently tell us that you remember more about the body language than about the actual words being spoken? Absolutely. So if you're comfortable, I want you to participate with me. I'm going to read three different scripture verses. I want you to express... Um, what this might look like with your hands and your arms, okay? So some of you are like, sweet, I love doing this stuff. Some of your heart rate is already beating. Um, if, you're, if you're in danger um, of having a heart attack, just don't participate. Just take a deep breath. You don't have to do it, okay? No one's going to check on, on you. But if you want to, play along. Express with your hands and arms the following. Uh, Psalm 152, listen carefully, it's not going to be on the screen. Psalm 152 says this, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Use your hands and arms to show what that might look like. Okay? Leave your hands up for a second. Uh, and then move into this one. Colossians 1.21 says this. This includes those who were once far away from God. You were enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. What would you use, what would you use with your hands and arms maybe to, to, to describe that? Okay? Okay? Uh, here's, here's, here's the last one. James 1.5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. How would you use your hands and arms to ask that? Okay, or, to, or to, to reveal that. Okay, put your hands down. Thank you. Kind of interesting, isn't it? To think about talk about sauce and prayer. To think about our arms and how we would express it. In the Bible, and on a Sunday morning, I think all of us have used our hands. Some of us are out there people, so we use our hands. We don't care who sees it. Some of us raise our hands in our heart, don't we? I mean, we, we, we're singing like this, but in our heart, we're jumping up and down. What we see in these three passages are this. Hands raised in praise. Hands raised in rebellion. You were once alienated, enemies of God. And hands raised just with a question, Right? I love first service, first, uh, first Sundays of the month. First Sunday of the month, we keep all the kids with us. And the moment I start talking, man, there's kids just put their hands up. I've got a question. And if I you know, stopped and answered every one of them, we, we'd never get very far. But, but I love it because they just go, wait, wait, I have a comment about that or I have a question about that. Kids don't mind just raising their hand in a question. There's a humility that says, I don't know the answer to that. I need help. We could also say that we raise our hands and surrender. Children, think about you, this, parents. Kids raise their hand in need. A kid walks up to you, all they got to do is do this. And you're like, okay, and you just scoop them up. They don't have language to tell you. They're just raising their hands in need. Here's what we see this morning. I think for the first and only time in the Gospels, we have the disciples explicitly saying, Jesus, teach us. Did Jesus teach a lot? Yeah, think about this. Parents, parents who wonder how the prayer life of their children are going, 
That was a great comment, Allie. We are always teaching. Whether we want to or not. We're always teaching. Jesus' lifestyle was a giant classroom. He just constantly was teaching. He was teaching on the way. He taught at a meal. He taught uh, as he commented on other people. He taught as he walked by a tree. He was always teaching. And yet here the disciples very specifically say, teach us to pray. Now, Now think just for a second. If you could take one class from Jesus... You got to pick one class and you got to set the title and sort of the curriculum of what he would cover. I'm not going to ask you to respond, but just think in your mind, what would that be? What would you ask Jesus to teach you if you did it one and only time? Now, could there have been other times? Of course. Luke didn't report everything the disciples ever said to Jesus. But I think it's interesting that the only time we ever see them say, teach us, is teach us to pray. What could they have asked for? Think about this for a second. Think about the best-selling Christian books. Think about the conferences that sell out the most. I think many of us in this room might have these kinds of things. Uh, Jesus, I need a course on ethics. Jesus, I need a course on how to win friends and influence people. Jesus, I need a course on how to be efficient and strategic in ministry. Jesus, I need a course on spiritual warfare. I mean, these are the things that pique a lot of people's curiosity. Jesus, I need a course on how to be married in a good way. Of all the things that the disciples could have asked Jesus about, they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. I think just stopping and pausing for a second, thinking of all the other things that they could have asked him about, we go, why did they ask him about this? I wonder if it's this. I wonder if they saw all these works Jesus was doing. It's slowly being peeled back of who Jesus is. They're seeing him accomplish amazing things. And I wonder if they have distilled it down to say, you know, the the core of this seems to be Jesus' prayer life. And we want in on that. We want in on these things, Jesus, that you're doing. We've already been sent out by you on a missions trip. We've come back. We've seen incredible things go on. But we want more. And I wonder if they sort of see this core thing as prayer. You know what? It's the way he prays. Jesus intentionally, it seems, to let his disciples in on praying. There's a few different times where he says things out loud And he says it for the benefit of others. He doesn't need to say it out loud. He is praying out loud with his mouth, parents, so that he can teach prayer to his disciples, to his friends. So teach us to pray is what they say. And Jesus says, okay, pray like this. Man, I mean, some of you are note takers. You're like, hang on, let me get my pen out. Here we go. And almost before it starts, it's over. Even if you pray this prayer in a slow, meditative, Father-like voice, like sort of spiritual voice, it wouldn't take you that long, maybe 30 seconds. He gives a sample prayer. He tells a little story. He makes a few comments, and then off they go. This course is over almost before it begins. Teach us to pray. Okay, here you go. And he sort of launches into it. Um, I've written this central truth down for you. If you want one thing from this, uh, I could be wrong. I always hold the, op- the option open that I could be wrong. I'd love to discuss it with you. 
but my, my sort of central truth that I got out of this was surprising to me. Dave, you're the pastor. You get paid to pray. You should know this stuff. I wrote something a little bit more religiously safe, a little bit more plain vanilla as the central truth. And I think ultimately it's the culmination of a whole bunch of stuff. But when I really sat with this, this central truth emerged to me. Here it is. Pester in prayer. Pester in prayer, knowing your father isn't bothered by you. And he gives generously. So again, we're going to look at this passage. You can say, I would word it different. Fine, I'm good with that. But this is what sort of leapt out to me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of walk through the prayer. I'm not going to do what Jesus didn't do and take a whole giant seminary time to sort of dissect everything, but I want to sort of make a few comments. We'll look at the story, and then we're going to end our time praying together, just praying as a family. So did Jesus give this prayer to say verbatim, that is word for word, or is this just a model prayer that we're supposed to follow, yes or no? You can just think about it. No one on the spot for a second. I think the answer might be yes and no. If you look at this prayer in Matthew's passage, what you see that Luke did is he sort of condensed it a little bit. He dropped a few words here and there. And when you look at the Matthew passage, here's the context. Jesus says this, when you pray, don't babble on and on with meaningless repetition like the Pharisees. Here's what I would say. If you rattle off the Lord's prayer without thinking about it, don't pray it verbatim. I think the answer is no. That might be Diablo prayer sauce, right? Like that's just wicked flesh stuff. I'm saying a bunch of stuff. God, you have to do this. I said 40 Hail Marys. I've prayed the Lord's Prayer every day for 40 years. That's not what prayer is. Any more than if a child or your spouse came to you and rattled off the same greeting card they gave to you in 1992. You're like, that's weird. Stop it. So that's on the no, don't pray it verbatim. Here's the yes part. The yes part is this. Anyone move? You don't have to raise your hand again. I just feel like I'm asking too much of you. Anyone feel moved by just praying the words of the Lord's Prayer? Man, in this condensed few words, Jesus gives us this prayer that has effectively communicated, yes, that's what my heart wants to be about, for centuries to people in all kinds of different locations. So you don't think the master teacher is able to give you this condensed little package, say, here, pray like this. In that sense, yes, pray it verbatim. He doesn't waste a word. And he sets our priorities for us. So check your heart. Maybe it's a verbatim prayer for you. Maybe it would be best for you not to pray it verbatim. But here's what I see. It's a template for us to follow. He starts with two God things. He wraps up with three people things. Super simple. We're going to take a look at this. The first thing he says is, Father, do not lose the impact of this. Didn't Jesus get in deep, deep trouble for calling God his dad? Almighty God, hey, Dad, Father, Daddy, Abba. It's this intimate phrase. You read the Gospels, it ultimately got him killed. That very idea. Now he's teaching other people, non-rabbi status people, do the same thing. You ever wonder on the first day of a job, what am I supposed to call you? 
People ask me sometimes, should I call you Pastor Carlson, Reverend? I say the good Reverend. I don't say that. I say, just call me Dave. But your boss, you want to know, what's this relationship like? How should I address you? Am I allowed to come into your office? Do I need to send a memo? How do we work this? Isn't this powerful? Jesus says, when you pray, it's a family conversation. And it's not father, which in our culture would be a little bit more formal. It's dad. It's an intimate, familiar phrase. The very thing Jesus got in trouble for. So if part one is the template, it's the God things. Jesus is saying this, the priority of prayer is, is God and, and the things above. I read this in my just reading plan this week. Colossians 3, it jumped out at me. Colossians 3, 1, you've heard it before. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why are we instructed to do this? Because our natural default will go to stuff on earth. So we have to be told, if this were our natural go-to thing, we wouldn't even need to write this. There's no scripture I can see that says, breathe air. We just do that naturally. But we need to be told, set your mind, take it and set it on things that are above, where Christ is seated. So this is what we're doing in prayer. We start with the things above because it's the most important and the longest lasting. So Jesus is a man of priorities. He starts with the things of God. Hallowed be your name, he says. What does hallowed mean? That's that's an archaic word, but we all know this. Many of us know this as hallowed be your name. It simply means holy. What does holy mean? We already talked about it. It just means set apart. Your name and you, God, that goes with it, is altogether different than anyone I've ever met. Your ways are completely confounding to my ways and thoughts and plans and priorities. So part of setting our mind in prayer on God's name is to acknowledge immediately that that there's something totally different. This conversation that we're having, while there are similarities, it's altogether different than any other conversation I'll have today. So hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. The way the language works in this is this is not a statement saying back to God what is. It is a request. It's like saying make holy your name. Do whatever it takes so that people on this earth will see you for who you are. In essence, it would be, it would be this request. Reveal who you are. And God, start with my own life. Let me see who you are. Are we concerned that we get Yahweh pronounced right or spelled right? No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. What's wrapped up in a name? What's wrapped up in a name is everything that that person is. The reputation, who they are, who they aren't. So God, reveal to the whole earth, reveal who you are. Let that be the starting point of prayer. God's glory and fame is our highest priority in prayer because watch this, it is for our and everyone we love, it's for all of our greatest good. I hope that you pray about the laws in our land changing or staying the same as per scripture. So I think continue to pray about laws changing, but watch this, what if all the lawmakers saw God for who he was and revered in their heart the holiness of a personal God. 
who's ruling today on a throne. Wouldn't that, by default, make a lot of the laws change in a really powerful way? Not just for one administration, but it could alter the course of the land. How about this? What if you're praying? Should you be praying about the latest crisis in health or relationship? Yes. But what if those suffering from that health crisis, you or someone else, what if that person in your life that you're at odds with, maybe it's your spouse, what if both of you saw God for who he is and that any demands he's placed on you is for your good and your health? Wouldn't that revolutionize the relationship? Wouldn't that person who's suffering from a, from a health crisis, if they just gloried in the fact that they're in health with God because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, wouldn't that change everything? It would. So, so we start with this high-level thing. What does this next part mean? Your kingdom come. It's imploring God to rule over us. It's seeing him as a king with a kingdom. It's setting our, our minds on a king who is working right now. So when we say, God, rule on this planet, start with ruling in my heart. I've placed you as Lord of my life. I've acknowledged that. I've bowed the knee. I, I re-bow the knee. It's also this idea of uh, just, just a prayer of submission, a prayer of hope, a prayer of urgency, that the way things are is not the way things always will be. God, come quickly and set aright all the things that are broken. Many, many people come to their friends who are Christians or to pastors and they say, Pastor, I want to know God's will for my life. And I just say, man, you're really close. Just it's too long of a question. Just say, I want to know God's will. Full stop. I want to know God's will. Your life will fold into that. What I want to... I want to know God's will for my life is thinking sort of way, way, way too small. The answer to God's will for your life is, is kind of folded into God's will. What are the things God has clearly established that's his will? Get going on those things. Taken together, God, would you allow people to see who you are? Because I think that's going to be that's going to just give all kinds of answers to questions people have. And, and God, help people see what you're up to. And that, that prayer alone is so uplifting to me. This is built into our title, The Good Doctor. We looked at this last week. But if you don't read Luke, understanding who Jesus is, he makes a divinity claim. Who is good but God alone? God, hallowed be your name. Reveal that you're good. Not just you're the best amongst other gods. You are the embodiment of good. That's who you are. God, your kingdom come. What is God's kingdom about? Jesus says it plainly. I came to seek and save the lost. If you don't understand Jesus is on a rescue mission, you'll get Luke all screwed up. You'll get all sorts of weird ideas about what we're supposed to do and what the priorities are. I found right in our two key passages of Luke this part of the prayer. Reveal who you are. Reveal what you're up to. In my life, yes, but way broader than that. All right, those are the God things. Now from sort of the, the, the you know, macro 32,000 feet into the micro. Like, like what happens when we zoom in to the absolute mundane stuff of life? Here we go. <clears throat> bread, daily bread. I want to tell you that you are at a distinct 
disadvantage spiritually by living in the Silicon Valley. If you're visiting from somewhere else, you can thank God for that. Because spiritually, you may have an advantage over people who live here. I was born and raised in San Jose. So when I think about daily bread, I think about what's working against me. We had a walk-in pantry. My mom raised four hungry boys. This is pre-Costco, people. Speaking of Costco, we have Costco, right? Uh, We have deep freezers. I have a deep freezer in my outside garage where I can store up just food galore. I have another refrigerator out in my... Don't judge. I've got a big family. I've got another refrigerator out out in there, and I've got one inside of my house. We are at a distinct disadvantage because many economies around the world today will pray this, and it will mean something to them. Father in heaven, would you provide food for me and those that I'm responsible for today? And it will mean something. Many people, most people I've ever met in this area have never prayed that prayer with any sincerity uh, just based on their physical location. That hasn't been a real issue for them. But if you've ever been there, maybe paycheck to paycheck and you can't feed yourself or those who you care for, or maybe it's relational or spiritual or mental or emotional. And you have prayed, God, help me emotionally today to get through this next hour, and I'm just going to keep praying that you would provide. Because I can't see, I don't have a deep freezer stored up emotionally for what I'm going through right now. My hunch is this, you have come through that season and you see God in a new light. You see him as intimately personal, caring for you. You see him as trustworthy that day by day, hour by hour, he will provide for his children. It is a spiritual disadvantage for those of us in many parts of the West because the physical lack of need blinds us to our daily, hourly spiritual need. Jesus said it this way, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know, each meal that we ever eat is a chance to cultivate not only gratitude, I hope you say thanks for the food, but it's actually a chance to cultivate dependence. It's a recognition that your job could go away like that. That the power could go off tomorrow and all your deep freezer stuff is now a headache to you. It's a recognition that, God, yes, I have this and you've entrusted it to me, but I am dependent on you even for this meal right here. How about the next one? He moves on to talking about sins being forgiven. There's two parts to this. It's that we be forgiven for God and that we would forgive other people. Is this not a daily need, people? As much as you need food today, because God's created humans incredibly frail and weak, life is precious and fleeting. We need food often. So it is spiritually. We require daily forgiveness. And daily, we will be, it will be required of us to forgive other people. As you grow up in God, you know what you see? You see yourself more accurately. And it's really annoying. The more scripture you know, the more you go, man, I thought I was doing so good. I sort of lopped off these giant sins over here. I wasn't murdering. I wasn't cheating. I wasn't doing these things. There's more. And, and, And the closer you do get to a holy God, 
the more that light reveals things about you. You know, sin causes us to see ourselves not with accuracy, but inaccurately. And here's what's dangerous. We tend not only to be blind, but to compound matters, sin has a way of blinding us to our blindness. Paul David Tripp, in a book I'm reading called Whiter Than Snow, says this. Sin lives in a costume. Perfect for an October Halloween passage. Here we go. Impatient yelling wears the costume of zeal for truth. Lust can masquerade as love for beauty. Gossip does its evil work by living in a costume of concern in prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as a servant heart. The pride of always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is part of its draw, end quote. You know, the grace of seeing our sin and asking for forgiveness leads us into this next part. Here's a hint. If you ever find yourself blocked going, I cannot forgive that person. That's part two of this prayer. Look at the first part. If part two is blocked and broken, why can't I forgive this person? Look at the first part. What's the first part? The first part is vertical forgiveness. If you sit and savor all that God's forgiven you, all the payment's done, it's the parable Jesus tells. How, how pitily is the forgiveness you're extending to someone? But it's a really big deal. I know. But an evidence that you are forgiven by a holy God in your life is your ability to readily forgive those who've wronged you. Lastly, in the prayer, would you please guard me? Protection in temptation. The wording in this was always confusing to me as a kid. The wording makes you think it's a request that God won't tempt you. That's wrong. That is flat out wrong. The Bible explicitly says God is not tempted by evil and he never tempts anyone. So that's not what the request is. Rather, people are tempted and lured away by their own lusts and their own desires. This is how James puts it. So what God, God's part in this is this. He allows testing. A part of testing is temptation. So the prayer is for safety from ourselves, our own lusts and desires that lure us away, and from the devil. That we would endure and follow God's clear path to safety. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a verse worth memorizing. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted. What? Beyond what you are able. But with each temptation, what's he going to provide? A way of escape. So right in the midst of temptation, you go, I'm getting sucked down the water slide of my own temptation. I'm lured away. God, where's the escape hatch? Right now. Right now in this moment. It's looking for the path of safety. God's promised that. You want to know God's will? It's that his children, in the midst of the testing, would look for the escape hatch. The way out of the fire. It's there. So look for it. 
This is a daily prayer, and sadly, it never ends. I remember asking my youth pastor one time. I was struggling with lust as a high school student. I said, Mike, you've been happily married to your wife, Lisa, for a long time. Tell me this goes away. He said, it doesn't, Dave. That was like super depressing to me. He goes, but it does change. It changes immensely. And I would say the same thing. Your daily temptations, they they just don't ever go away. Like, know that that's always going to be part of living in a fallen world. But it does change, doesn't it? There are whole seasons of your life you can look back on and go, man, that's not even remotely a struggle for me anymore. All right. Wow. We're going to get to prayer because that's what the schedule says. It's hard to preach 30 minutes for me. I'm just going to say it. All right. Let me just wrap up with this thought before we we get to, to prayer. Jesus leads us in a prayer, a model prayer, and then he tells this little story. And the main point of the story is this. The main point of the story is bother God with all of your needs. Let me just read it out loud so you can hear it. And he told them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are are with me in bed. I hear that. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet, because of his impudence, his ongoing shameless knocking, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Do you know what Jesus is telling us? Listen to this. Pester God in prayer. Badger him. Annoy him. Don't take no for an answer. Keep at it. Nag, bug, hound. His closing comments back this up. Lest you think, well, maybe he didn't mean that in the story. What he says really plainly is this. The person in the house. Who's the person in the house? It's God. It's the one fielding the request for the three loaves. He says, even if he won't be like awakened from his slumber because of his friendship with you and the need for his name's sake. Go do a word study on for his name's sake in the scriptures, by the way. I did. It was powerful. For his name's sake, for his reputation, he will arouse himself from his slumber and go through with the request that's being made. Super powerful. Let's just finish out the passage. Ben, come on up. Verse 9 says this, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks will find. To the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Some of you have heard lots of sermons on this. You know that ask, seek, and knock, the language is this. Ask and keep on asking. What's the title image with those little repeats? Those of you who read music say this. When you're reading notes and you get that little symbol that's to the right of ask, seek, and knock on the front of your bulletin, it means you repeat. Go back to another one of these signs, find it, and just keep doing that. Ask, seek, knock, repeat. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking, knock, and keep on knocking. Do you parent your kids different than how God parents us? I am shocked 
over and over and over again how differently I parent my kids than how God parents me. I googled pestering kid to try to find an image for a kid pestering their parent. Do you know what came up? Try it. You will get nine strategies for getting your kid to stop pestering you. Three tips to teach your toddler to stop asking the same thing over and over and over again. Think about it, parents. Don't we say, ask once and receive the answer. If you keep asking me, what's going to happen? I mean, we have all these strategies to not do this. I'll be honest with you. I'm still working out how that's all going to play out. But what I see in this text is bother God with your prayers. It's not a bother to him. Pester him with your prayer. What we're going to do right now is this. We're going to sing a song, and then we are going to pray in community. Read the language of this. Forgive us our sins. This is community. Should you pray quietly in your prayer closet? Yes, that's biblical. But is prayer also a team sport? Absolutely. This is a communal thing to come and pray together. So Ben and I are going to kind of lead you through just sort of praying God part, people part um, as a church family. And before we do that, we'll go ahead and sing a song.